we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Shifts Happen. Uh, joining me to bring the intelligence to this conversation that I lack, for the most part, is my buddy Luke Grumman. Hi, mate. How are you? Doing great, Grant. How are you today? I'm doing just just dandy, just dandy. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while, and you and I were just talking um, off mic about just how fast things are happening right now. And you know, it really seems to me that um, you know the the the, the enormous slice of serendipity that brought you and I together back in 2014 odd you know with me finding that report of yours screwed up in the back of an airplane seat back I still can't quite believe that whole thing but um you know we've been talking about this for for well eight, eight odd years now and um when we began talking about when I first read what you'd written about the, the kind of much bigger game that was in afoot um it just instantly made sense to me and and that I think um, put me at an advantage to, to many people that read your your stuff because it's it's out there, right? It, it's the kind of stuff that you really have to sit back and think about. You really have to take a really broad view to try and get your head around all the moving parts. And, and I think with what's happening at the moment, there's so much rat-a-tat-tat machine gun news happening every day. It just makes it harder for people to to sit back and find the time and the space to think about the really big picture stuff. And you do it honestly, mate, better than anybody. So I, I, I'm keen to have this conversation with you and kind of kick through a few of the updates on what's happening. So so you, you wrote one of your amazing tree rings reports last Friday. And a lot of that focused on the treasury market, which is really kind of ground zero for where the battle's being fought. So so let's kick off there. And let's talk about, um, you know, I, I guess the first item you had was talking about mainstream media not really understanding where Putin is in this. So, so let, let's kick off with that and, and I'll let you run with it and I will, I will follow along yapping at your heels as best I can. <laughs> you, you sell yourself way short, but no, thank you. Um, I, I think it's important in the context of that question to go back to this conversation that you and I had back eight months ago or seven months ago, I guess, right, in early March where we said, look, I, I, my, my view was that Western analysts were, by and large, uh, heavily underweighting uh, the amount of leverage that Putin had and what was happening. And my point in saying that was, I, I think he knew two things, two big gears that he under he, that he could that he two pillars he could base his his position on, which is number one, the world uh, cannot survive without his energy. Number two, the West is way more indebted than he is, and and that that would turn it into a balance sheet contest. And if it turned into a balance sheet contest, he would be in better shape than the West, and the West would break first. And so if we look forward seven months from when we had that conversation, uh, empirically, we can see the world cannot survive without his energy, full stop. We're yeah. seeing in Europe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't even think we need to spend that much time on that. The world can't. We're talking about you know people burning garbage in Poland to stay warm, so on and so forth. Okay. So that, that was sort of statement number one. Pillar number one is holding up very well under the pressure of Western sanctions, et cetera, et cetera. The second thing I think we're seeing play out really in the last couple of weeks, which is Western sovereign debt, if you take away Russia's energy, if you just raise the price of energy, you don't even take it away, you just raise the price of energy, 
you're going to start putting pressure on Western sovereign debt markets, Western debt markets more broadly. Uh, and we've started to see these stresses emerging when you talk about what the Bank of England was forced to do, uh, I guess, two weeks ago. Um, what, you know, fascinating to this morning or today as we're speaking, it's 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 Monday the 10th. Uh, Bank of England's had to upsize that. They've had mm -hmm. to, and, and you're already seeing the gilt market, and gilt yield, 10-year gilt yields right back to the highs where they were 10 days ago, already testing the BOE. Um, European Central Bank has had to come out with, they've called it, what are their anti-fragmentation strategy? Or, yeah. They basically, they ran the Weimar Germany energy playbook. Oops, we lost our energy. Okay, we're going to print money instead. Oh, now why are our periphery yields rising? This does, Well, of course it makes sense. Well, then they run anti-fragmentation uh, policies to, uh, what, did, what did Lagarde call it? it to, to better reflect the economic funda fundamentals, yes. which is yes. hilarious, right? It's because beautiful, that. the it's, fragmentation it's, was the fundamentals, exactly right? So. Right. So you've got yield curve control, you know, the European central, the European sovereign debt market breaking. You have the uh, Bank of England, the, the, the gilt market breaking. Uh, Bank of Japan, of course, went into um, uh, upsized yield curve control all in April. As you know, the time we wrote, you know, not even, you know, the title of the report was Bank of Japan upsizes QE into an inflation mm -hmm. spike. If the Fed doesn't follow soon, a major global crisis will follow. Fed didn't follow with yep, yield curve control, a major global crisis followed. You've seen <laughs> um, the same. So you've had, if you call sort of the four biggest central banks, um, we'll leave China out of it for a second, UK, EU, Japan, US, three of the four sovereign debt markets have effect been forced into some version of yield curve control. And the US is uh, straining mightily. Um, uh, there was a great quote we had uh, that uh, a friend of ours sent from Harley Bassman, who's uh, mm -hmm. brilliant. And um, people have been showing ourselves included this, the move index of, of treasury volatility. And, and Harley has a public missive you can sign up for it. I would highly recommend anybody yes. do that. You just Google it and, and read it. And, and he had this missive last Tuesday where invented <laughs> this index. And with this level, with the move index where it is today, the Fed has already lost control of the Treasury market. His words, yeah. not mine. And so you've got three of the four big central banks, uh, four of the three of the four Western central uh, big big Western central banks, uh, in some form of yield curve control or another. And the Treasury market straining mightily. And in the meantime, two weeks ago, the Russians cut rates. And the currency rose again against the dollar. It's been remarkably steady, around 60 rubles to the dollar this whole time. Um, and we, what, what I would finish before we continue with the conversation with this chart in this report that, that you're aware of is if you uh, – Barton Biggs had a great book, the old – I think it was Morgan Stanley strategist um, – yeah. uh, Wealth, War, and Wisdom. And I read it in 2008, and it's a really good book that looks um, at World War II uh, through the eyes of markets. And it shows that markets were discounting things well in advance of common knowledge. Famous one he highlighted was the Battle of Midway, where oh, the yeah. Japanese said, hey, we won. Uh, yeah, we took a couple losses, but we won. The Americans said, we won, and no one knew for sure, but the stock market basically bottomed at the Battle of Midway and never looked back. And, and in hindsight, it was obvious we had... Uh, scored a huge naval victory. The Japanese would never be able to uh, really mount an offensive um, uh, of serious nature on U.S. West Coast or why anything like that ever again. And markets discounted this. So by the bottom, I think June of 42, April 42, never looked back. We have this chart that shows uh, four things. 
the 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 uh, inverted U, uh, U.S. ten-year yield, inverted ten-year uh, gilt yield, UK government bond yield, uh, the United States Strategic Petroleum Reserve or SPR inventory level, and the price of oil. And you can see these charts. This chart that if markets are sort of picking winners and losers, what you can see is is that energy prices are flat to up slightly versus mm -hmm. where they were when Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, the price, and again, this is inverted yield for effect, but the price, UK 10-year UK, uh, uh, government bonds in the US and UK have fallen sharply since then. And the US Strategic Petroleum Reserve inventory has fallen sharply. Uh, and that's a finite reserve. So that is yep. at some point going to run out and oil will go even higher. So you look at this chart and you say, for all of the noise, for all of the uh, propaganda from all sides of this whole thing, as you know, you you're, we're living through this fog of war from all sides on social media, which is arguably the first war that we've seen uh, on on social media. The markets are telling you that in a battle that we laid out back in March in our conversation between energy and Western sovereign debt, energy's winning, walking away, going away, and it's going to keep winning. And and once you understand that. And then you factor in what happened last week with the, you can start thinking about things like the, the, the blow up of the Nord Stream pipelines. And then what I thought was a huge moment with that OPEC, um, yeah, OPEC the production cut. Yeah. The yeah. production cut. So that's sort of a brief, I think, uh, synopsis that I think gets us kind of, kind of to today and, and touches on some of those things. Well, I, I need to insert a sound effect here of me rolling my sleeves up because there's just so much to get into here. And, and, and I guess what I want to start with is, is the ability that we need to have, frankly, and, and, and a lot of people don't have it, to, to disassociate the war in terms of the physical battleground and the economic implications of the war. Because people think that the two are linked. And if the headlines say Putin is losing the war and bridges are getting blown up to Crimea and all this stuff is happening on the battlefield and you know rusting hulls of tanks and Ukraine pushing back and all this stuff on the battlefield, people don't take the two things as separate. And they, they assume that because that's happening, he's losing the war between the energy and the dollar. He's losing it he's losing on all fronts. And I don't think that necessarily has to be true. And, and you, you know, you're right, the fog of war, we, we have no idea what's going on in the battlefields in Ukraine, unfortunately. We just don't. And then and and anyone that, that makes absolute statements about what's happening, what isn't happening, to me personally, is is missing that grey that is so important to try and figure out for yourself. But let's leave the war to one side. Let's leave the actual fighting to one side and, and focus on what you and I do, and that's that's the economic side of it. Because I think it's so important what you've laid out and what you talk about here. Um, and and I guess I want to start with getting you to elaborate on the statement about um, how how the oil, the energy war puts pressure on treasuries because there's a linkage there um, that, you know, if you read Tree Rings, you'll get, and, and it's a really important one, but just, just lay out how that happens because there's a couple of steps to it I think people need to understand. Yeah, so it's the, the link between energy and the treasury market, I still don't think is that well understood. I think it's starting to get more well understood, but, but that linkage is essentially once you take energy prices up enough, you are going to either slow, you're going to do things, two things. You're going to increase the import bill for any energy importing nation or region. So EU, Japan, India, China. Um, and 
you're also going to slow their economy because energy serves as a discount rate. It's going to take away from other portions of their economy. So those two factors have swung uh, nations basically into current account deficits, uh, energy importers into current account deficits across the world, including ones that historically have been current account surpluses like Japan, like uh, the Germans in particular um, within the EU. So once that happens, you can do, you have a couple of options. If you are not the reserve currency issuer and you start running twin deficits, there are a few things you can do. You can slow your imports, right? So you stop importing as much oil. Well, that is austerity. That is going to send your economy into a recession on purpose. The problem is that the debt levels, the sovereign debt levels and obligations of all of these countries, they can't afford that. They will start defaulting on that. That is bad for their sovereign debt markets. Okay. Uh, the second option is you print the difference. Uh, you can print the difference. You basically weaken your currency. Uh, and at that point, you start seeing higher uh, higher energy prices, weaker currency for e- everything uh, that you import gets more expensive. Um, and as inflation goes up, the interest rate on your debt goes up. Your, your debt sells off. Your interest rate goes up. Here, too, that slows your economy, makes your debt less sustainable. You get into a doom loop that way, too. Um, those are historically the two uh, dynamics. The third dynamic that is available um, is to sell your, you know, you you have a piggy bank of savings. If you are a country that has been running a current account surplus, you run a, a surplus, you end up with surplus dollars, you invest those in dollar assets. Um, you hear that you know, FX reserves uh, is a big chunk of that. You can, that is, when you hear FX reserves, you should think that's a national piggy bank. And when times get tough, you can break the piggy bank and start spending those historical savings to fund your imports, to basically finance your current account deficit that, again, is largely energy driven. And that means you are effectively selling U.S. dollar denominated assets. And that is heavily in the FX reserve lines, uh, U.S. Treasury bonds. So basically what you are doing then is having these nations that have been running current account surpluses that are now running deficits. Uh, have it largely driven due, due to, driven due to energy deficits, uh, having to effectively sell treasuries to buy energy. So even as people are getting upset and 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 you see they were supporting you know the West, not Russia, the fact is at the economic level, everybody is selling the West, selling us treasuries on yeah. some level and buying oil. And that's because in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yeah, the dollar is above all other fiat, but oil is above dollar and oil is above treasuries. And and uh, because otherwise people freeze and people starve. And so you're seeing this vicious cycle play out where energy goes up. These countries have to sell treasuries faster to buy more energy. The treasury market, for any number of regulatory reasons, overall debt levels is not as liquid as it used to be. That sends rates up. And we've got you know, the more rates go up, the more the dollar goes up, the more the dollar goes up. These other countries' currencies go down. The more they go down, the bigger their deficits, the more treasuries they have to sell. And so we're in this doom loop, wash, rinse, repeat, until either the Fed comes in and caps treasury yields or renews QE, or the system's going to collapse. Um, it's it, it's mathematical at this point. It, it's And that's what ties back to that conversation that you and I had back in March where there was this this hubris, this lack of second and derivative thinking that that the Russia situation was going to go the way the Iran situation did, the way the Venezuela situation had gone, and the way the Iraq's and 
my view at the time you're, you know, I think that you shared as well, but certainly you and I talked about, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, was that he has more leverage than people think. And this, what we're watching in real time play out is that, that leverage. Well, you, you touched on the OPEC um, plus production cuts. And I, and I think this is the perfect time to bring that in because, you know, you talk about leverage um, and you talk about, you know, a, a, a group who have, quote unquote, been on the side of the West because that's kind of suited them for the longest time. And yet here we are now, we're at a point where suddenly everyone's got domestic politics to play now and not international politics. And as anyone that pays attention to stuff knows, domestic politics always trumps international politics, which would just happen to have been in a 40, 50 year period where you could you could place globalization and international politics above your domestic agenda pretty safely. So, so what's happened with OPEC Plus? What, what's happened in the decision they've been making? And what's your take on the reaction from the West? Because some of the, the rhetoric, particularly coming out of the Biden administration in the wake of that move, which if you actually step aside and, and put any national allegiance aside and look at it in the cold, hard light of day, is a perfectly sensible thing for them to do. Just walk me through what you've thought as you've watched this situation unfold in the last few days. Yeah, so for for for, for the for the listeners that aren't, aren't aware of it, OPEC came out and said they were going to cut oil production by one to two million barrels a day at a time when I think Western consensus was that oil prices are high. We need to get oil prices down on a topical level because an election is coming up in the next month and higher gas prices are all else equal bad. And I think there's absolutely an element of truth to that. However, when you take a bigger step back and look at the dynamics that we just ran through, which is the higher oil goes, the bigger current account deficits there are, the more treasury selling there will be, wash, rinse, repeat. What OPEC really did was launch an attack on the U.S. Treasury market. They attacked the capital flows to the United States government, the funding cost of the U.S. government. Now, why did they do that? Um, I've heard credible rumblings that certain major parties to OPEC found what the United States and Europe did to Russian FX reserves was quote unquote terrifying Mm -hmm. um, in terms of seizing them. Do I think that's the reason they did it? No, I think they're. I think again to your point, it's 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 real politic. And and uh, uh, Anas uh, Anas Al Hajji uh, had a great point um, in in uh, where he laid out. Look, the the West's moves to cap oil prices uh, to try to punish Russia. I think OPEC is looking at that and going, if they can do that against nuclear armed Russia. And we don't stop them from doing that. We're going to be next, and we don't have nukes, and so it will be easy for them to do. And we have their troops in our backyard, and the Russians don't have their, our troops in their backyard. So, I think this was just largely cold, hard, real politique around. Look, if 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 we let them choke, if we let the U.S. and the West choke out Russia with oil caps. And again, we take a step back as OPEC and we look at the Western debt situation, which is completely unsustainable unless you have negative real rates, and in particular, negative real rates relative to oil, which means they basically need to, they, the West, need to steal OPEC oil. They need to pay them negative real rates uh, uh, of interest on their oil for the foreseeable future. If we let them choke out Russia, they're going to choke out us next. 
Uh, and so let's not do that. Uh, and oh, by the way, I'm sure the Chinese were in the background going, don't worry, we'll buy everything you can produce, right. which is something that has not been true 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. You have the Indians in the background. Don't worry, we'll buy whatever you want in Indian rupees. We'll take we'll take as much as you can offer. Uh, we can structure a deal. So suddenly, I think what you're seeing is in real time, these massive, massive shifts that are arguably every bit as big as the Berlin Wall coming down, where yeah. you have an OPEC empowered by the combination of fear that they don't want to get choked out and powerful in that oil's the real value here, not this paper, not this this Western sovereign debt. And as long as you have demand for that oil coming from China, coming from India, coming from Eurasia more broadly, you suddenly have this, this negotiating power that didn't exist five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, really any time, you know, in the aftermath of the, the, the Cold War, right? The, cold, the end of the Cold War, where it's really more signs that this unipolar moment in history of, of the United States from, I would say, you know, 89 through 2019 or 2020, 22, however you want to date it, uh, it was another sign that it is definitively over, in my yeah, opinion. I was, just, I was just looking for a quote that I put on the cover of my last um, report that I wrote you know, from um, uh, one of the Indian ministers saying, you know, what am I supposed to do? I have to look after my people when he's talking about buying oil cheaply. But yeah, you, you made a throwaway comment there. Um, you just threw in India said, we'll buy everything you got in rupees. And that, you know, that throwaway comment, it, the, it, the devil is in the details of that. And that's <laughs> what's been so fascinating to watch is, you know, I, I agree with you. I think when we had that conversation back in March in the wake of the, the Treasury sanctions on the Russian central bank, you know, we both said, look, this now forces every other central bank in the world to have a plan because they've proved now that if you are on the wrong side of the United States, and, and look, right now it's crossing a border, it could be in a vote at the UN, who knows what, what it could be, but but you're, you're basically derelict in your duty if you don't actually sit and think about, okay, how do we put ourselves in a position so we cannot have our assets seized by, by the United States? Um, and I think you're right. I think we're seeing that play out. Uh, we're seeing a lot of alliances now that have been quietly being made over the last 10 years in the background and have been, you know, tiny little stories. And you, again, you've done a phenomenal job of pointing those out all the way along, you know, the, this bilateral deal there and this trilateral deal there and handshakes and photo opportunities, which, you know, don't really merit much of a comment from most people. But we've, we've kind of reached this point now where uh, it, it, it looks now almost like enemy action, even though it's really a continuation of policies that have been actively uh, been put in place over a decade now. Um, do you do you get a sense that that this is purely, uh, as you say, real politic and, and these guys are simply trying to make sure that they're not in harm's way? Or is there a, a real palpable sense here that, that the West is weak and there is a way that we can actually secure, whether it's India, Saudi Arabia, China, Turkey, Iran, all these countries we can secure a much stronger bargaining position for ourselves here simply by agreeing to transact energy in our own currency. That's really all it takes at this point. That that would be enough. Yeah, and that's really, um, 
when you talk about the Gordian knot or the doom loop of of have to buy more energy and your currency weakens and the current account ri- deficit rises, wash rents repeat, and you're selling down these FX reserves. You know, I laid out there's three different options. You know, the third of one being sell your FX reserves, sell your treasuries. There's a fourth option to your point, Grant, which is agree to buy energy in your own currency. You know, take away that line item as the dollar outflow that is pushing you into a current account deficit because most oil still is bought in dollars. Most energy still is imported in dollars. If you start by importing some of it in your own currency, um, perfect example is China. There was, there was, uh, and people, I don't think fully understand this math. When I say, you know, I talk about the Petro Yuan, for example, being a big deal. People say, oh, it, it hasn't overtaken the oil market. It's still a fraction of the oil market. Yes, but that doesn't mean it's not a big deal. And the reason why it's such a big deal is now, in times like now, where in 2018, according to the IIF, uh, if you sh- if you took away all of China's commodity imports, it would increase their trade surplus by about $800 billion. Now, their imports of commodities were lower. The price of energy was lower. So you could easily say they, that right now, if you strip out all commodity imports from China, it could easily be, uh, it would easily increase their trade surplus by one $1 trillion to $1.5 trillion. Let's just use a trillion for, for conservative round math. Every 10% of China's commodity bill that they shift from dollars to yuan increases their effective dollar inflow. Those are because they don't have this 10% times a trillion, 100 billion. That's $100 billion they don't have to spend that they yeah. can print in yuan instead. And so suddenly it turns this whole, every, everyone has this problem. All these oil importing countries um, have, have all seen this problem emerge. Their oil bills go up, they have finite dollar reserves, they need to spend in dollars. Those that are willing to buy in their own currency suddenly will have an advantage where they can print their currency for it. I think they'll settle in some local goods, some net and gold at a floating price, I think is ultimately the deal. Um, However, this buys them time. When you see this dollar wrecking ball, uh, if China is buying on the margin more oil and commodities in Yuan, which they factually are, you absolutely, you can see it happening. You can see in the news stories, you can see it in FX reserves in places like Russia. Um, The uh, same thing with India, that now all of a sudden, these the dollar wrecking ball is going to hit nations unwilling to do that or unable to do that faster than it hits them. And this is all a relative game, right? Currencies are all a relative game. Yeah. We usually hear that as it relates to the dollar, and it's right. But now, once you take one step down from the dollar, China, India are going to be in relatively better shape relative to this doom loop that higher energy is putting on than, say, Britain in particular, or, say, Europe. Uh, Japan is also in s- sort of bad shape, but by function of, for a number of reasons, China has, or excuse me, Japan has a lot more in FX reserves to burn down before they run out. The, the UK and the EU, they have two months of import cover. Like they, they're going to be out of dollars by Christmas. Um, and and sort of then what? Versus Japan, for example, has 16 months of import cover. Uh, India has 10 months of import cover. And that assumes they don't start moving some of their import bill to rupees from from dollars. China has a lot more uh, uh, import cover. And again, they are factually moving their their so they're 
it's about who hits the wall first, basically. And right. Petro Yuan, Petro, uh, um, Petro Rupi, in the case of the Indians, uh, this buys them time until they have a currency crisis way before the Westerners, uh, and in particular, the UK and EU will have a currency crisis. But as, as we said, you know, the response from the Biden administration to this OPEC um, announcement, it seemed to me like a, a, a big overreaction. It seemed like a, 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 an expression of just how worried they were about it. There was, no, there was no measured response by them. They called it, I think, an act of war, I think was the or, or, you know, de facto act of war. So, so talk a little bit about the reaction from the US and what you thought when you saw the way that they handled this particular... Because, look, it was a surprise that OPEC did that, maybe not to people watching it closely. I think if you were handicapping it and you were paying attention, there was a much higher probability this would happen than you would think just reading the mainstream media. But it still came as a surprise to most people. Yeah, it was a surprise to me too. I mean, it was one of those things where once once you're sort of looking at the world through this lens, as soon as I saw OPEC floating out production cuts on Sunday of last week, that, that to me was like a, whoa, holy cow moment. Right. Let's see if they go through with it. And then not only did they go through with it, they upsized it. Um, so once, once you're looking through this lens, you can see very clearly U.S. administration is not going to be happy with this. In particular, Biden had been over there in, I think it was July yeah. with the fist bump and uh, had 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 secured the promise from the Saudis that they would upsize production to try to keep prices down, and you know since then it has come out that uh, that the U.S. had agreed to basically refill the SPR with Saudi oil at no lower than eighty bucks, no matter where the the price was. Which which as it relates to the whole Treasury market question, is kind of a, of a, a question is. Why on God's green earth would I buy treasuries if the U.S. government right. is promising to buy oil at 80? I'd have to be a moron. Um, full stop. So it's sort of six of one or half dozen, right? The fact is OPEC cut production raise prices now, or does the U.S. government promise to bid oil up to refill the SPR later? It's the same dynamic, and it keeps pointing to the same question, which is energy is the real value. Energy is beating Western sovereign debt. It is enforcing this higher levels of inflation, this doom loop. Look, if if, if you Western sovereigns didn't have the debt level they had, we could slash, you know, we could have the Fed take rates up a ton, collapse our economy, collapse emerging market economies. Yes, there'd be private credit losses. So what? It happens. It's an economic cycle. We move on. But the thing that is so different now versus any other time since really the 1920s is you can't take rates up that much without bankrupting the UK, the EU, the United States, yeah. Japan. And the ties right back to that initial point in our conversation from March, which is I don't think people in the West understand how much more leverage he has than consensus says he does, because they just there's been no no thinking from a first principles basis of. Western sovereign debt is a disaster. They can't raise rates that much without blowing themselves up. Well, it's funny because you know when when, when we've kicked around the the global financial system as a as a concept as a structure uh, over the last decade plus, uh, it's always been within the context of gold. It's always been currencies, fiat currencies against each other. You know, the dollar's the cleanest dirty show. All that stuff that that has been the way that we've looked at it, myself included. And you know, all that time. Energy was a given. Energy was a constant, and not only energy, but but cheap energy within within you know a, a range. It wasn't fixed, but but we saw that spike in 08. We saw that come back quickly, and since then, 
you've been able to rely on energy, but but it, it now turns out that guess what? You, more than gold, more than Bitcoin, you need power, and you need power going into a northern hemisphere winter badly. Um, and so here we are, right? And and everything you've talked about is being reflected. There were a couple of charts in the Tree Rings report of um, there was one that caught my eye: the Treasury sales um, in the last month, which I think forty billion dollars which is huge, right? So you, you can see this outflow, these sellers of treasuries. And I think you pointed out that, that was it the three biggest buyers of treasuries are all of all time negative? Gone. Yeah. They're all, they're all gone. Yeah, it's foreign central banks, it's the Fed and it's US banks. So, so what happens to the treasury market here? Because, you know, again, there's no point in saying, oh, this is it, because these things always play out much slower than you think. But whichever way you look at this, we're reaching a point now in this in this whole kind of mosaic being put in place where the number of options is is getting more limited by the week it seems and you know everyone calling for a fed pivot they've been doing so having one eye on the equity market thinking well the fed will pivot and the equity market will go back up in happy days but the, you know the chances are when i look at this that if the fed pivots it's going to be for reasons that make that a complete sideshow Yes, is the short answer. <laughs> it's it's very very. If you'd have asked me back in March, what are the odds the Fed is tightening to defend the Treasury market from and defend the dollar from the de-dollarization of energy markets led by Russia and 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 supported by China? Uh, I would have said it's less than five percent. Right. That that was the reason the Fed was. It was you know okay inflation. I the question. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like. The longer every month that has gone on that something has happened that over the last 12 years has forced the Fed to pause, pivot, become data dependent, those things have been happening with increasing frequency and increasing severity. And the Fed has continued with the narrative, we're going to keep tightening, we're going to keep tightening, we're going to keep tightening. The longer that goes on, the more likely it is to me that what we're watching, it really is a Volcker moment from the standpoint of the Fed is not fighting inflation. The Fed is fighting Russia. The Fed is fighting oil. Right. The Fed has to get oil down or else Treasury selling rates up. They will lose control of the Treasury market if they don't get oil down. Harley Bassman's uh, uh, index suggests the Fed's already lost control of it. So there's this level of, um, dare I say, desperation to try to raise rates as fast as possible to try to get oil down. And that ties back to the initial chart of it's not working. If you, if, if, if I, I am not surprised by it, but I think most people would have been surprised by it. If you said March, loop, Fed's going to get a lot more aggressive fight inflation. Where's oil? Where are treasuries? Where are long-term treasury yields? And I think 99% of people would have said oil's down significantly and long-term treasury yields are down significantly. And the exact opposite has happened. Oil mm -hmm. is flat to up slightly. And long-term treasury yields are down or up significantly. The prices are down significantly. So I, I think there is the the longer this goes on, the more likely it is that what we're watching is the Fed has been weaponized to try to defend the treasury market. And the challenge in that is that if they do pivot, oil's gonna fly. Putin, I mean, I I think right. OPEC's move last week means Putin's already won the economic war. Now we're just, you know, it's all, you know, what's left is the crying and, and the settling out and the marketing to market. Um, if the Fed pivots, oil takes off again to the, if, 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 if the Fed is, has, is being weaponized, 
then that that hamstrings them versus prior. And my view on that is every month that they haven't pivoted suggests that's more likely. The challenge in that is that that too is a self-limiting policy because ultimately they can only raise rates so far. I mean, you, if you look at where terminal Fed funds rates were being discounted uh, by Euro dollar futures 10 days ago, it, call it 5% for round math, we did the math that U.S. government's back to being a zombie status at, at yeah. 5% Fed funds, which is entitlements plus treasury interest is more than more than uh, tax receipts. So once they're a zombie, one of two things is going to happen. The dollar is going to skyrocket. Risk assets are going to collapse um, until they come back in and basically start financing uh, a quorum of, of U.S. deficits again, which is what they did in April, 20, April 2020 through April 2021, May 2021. Um, so they, if they over tighten, they have the same problem as if they under tighten. And so that makes it really tricky, uh, as an investor, uh, ultimately, if you believe they're going to take this thing all the way, your core belief, your first principal belief is the, the fed is willing to stand aside and let the United States government default on right. treasuries, entitlements, or defense. And my first principles on that are there's zero chance that's going to happen. And so if we start from that as our first principle, that there's no chance the Fed lets that happen, it's all about a pain contest. Um, and so I think the Fed, when you hear the Fed, Fed say they want to fight inflation, my view on that has evolved over the last several months to they're trying to they're trying to starve people in emerging markets so they stop can't afford food they can't afford oil and if they do that then oil maybe could fall enough so that they can get oil down defend the treasury market win versus putin and then save the whole thing before everything comes unhinged and i think that's an absolute pipe dream but i think that increasingly that is the united states game plan um well when it's the only game plan you got whether it's a pipe dream or not i mean it, realistically speaking based on you know, everything we've talked about um, today, it's tough to see another game plan, right? And 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 that, I think, is is where we're at, and that seems to be the big problem. The only other thing I would say um, is if this is uh, an energy competition, well, guess what? The U.S. has the shale patch, right? And the U.S. has all this shale. So talk a little bit about that role in it because, it's again, it's not as straightforward as people might think. Well, easy, we just, uh, you know... We scrap some regulation. We write some new regulation. We start, you know, we start pouring oil on the ground, and everything's fine. So, so talk a little bit about why that's not quite as straightforward as it seems. Yeah, and that's you know to your to the earlier list of one, two, three, you know, four option four is price, you know, price energy in your own currency. Option four B, it's really the same option is, is produce more energy domestically, right? You right. saw the U, UK had this problem in the seventies, and part of the way it got out of it is that the, the sterling fell so far that the North Sea became economic. And as soon as you bring the North Sea on, hey, look, we're exporting oil, our current account's better, the pound is strong. You know, the same dynamic exists today with U.S. shale. The problem is, that that is not often discounted is shale was a function of of three things, right? It was a function of high oil prices on a sustained basis, a function of negative real rates on a sustained basis, particularly relative to oil. And it was a function of, of, of new, uh, of long steerable laterals in terms of the fracking equipment. You know, these shale patches were known about in the early 80s. That, that, that was all known. What changed was the price 
interest rates and the the efficiency of the productivity gained by basically having a longer steerable straw that sucked more out all at once. So it uh, when you look at it with that, the very things the Fed is doing to fight inflation, fight oil, fight Russia, whatever it is, is in the sh- if, to the extent they're actually successful knocking down oil prices and raising rates, they're actually going to, uh, I won't say permanently, but ensure that the United States shale cannot produce more than it's producing right now for a very, very long time. Um, U.S., the big four basins of, of U.S. shale um, are declining. Uh, legacy wells decline at about a five, five and a half percent per month rate. Uh, that rate slows. The, the less new drilling you do, that rate comes down because all your depletions at the front end, first three to six months of those wells. So that was slow over time. So it's U.S. shale won't fall 60 percent, five percent times 12 months in a year, but it'll fall 30% a year, it'll fall 40% a year. And so then you overlay that with what we just described of how the Fed can weaponize um, to try to fight oil, fight Russia, uh, defund Russia. What you're talking about is the Fed, again, making a penny wise, pound foolish decision because maybe this is will be successful, maybe. Uh, for some brief period of time, if you can crash emerging markets enough that their oil demand collapses. But if you're successful, you're going to basically hand the keys to the oil market to Putin and to OPEC for the next five years, maybe the next 10 years, maybe forever. And so you have this very, very finite window in which to run this playbook, because if you do get oiled down enough, if you do get rates up high enough, you're going to turn the shale business upside down. They'll just stop drilling. It was interesting last week with oil up, the Baker Hughes rig count was down. Yep. Um, I, I would expect more of that to happen. And you'll start seeing U.S. shale production fall. And again, once it falls, it takes a long time and a lot higher oil on the other side, lower rates on the other side uh, to get it back there, to the, get that production back to where it was. So this, there's a, this simplistic view a lot of times, well, we're the biggest oil producer. Like there should be an asterisk next to that. Yes, under the right conditions. And the Fed is actively working as hard as they have in 40 years to completely eliminate those conditions. Well, not only that, but coming up to the midterms, it's going to be very difficult for the Democrats to make any kind of U-turn policy that is going to come into conflict with the green policies they've laid out. I mean, that's just you know, they're hanging on by a thread for these midterms the way it looks anyway. So to to, to make that kind of U-turn would be catastrophic for them, you would imagine. Yeah, I, it it corners them very much. And it's it's ironic because it's a big part of the reason the West is in the position they're in is because the energy, I'm trying to be diplomatic here and not get myself canceled. Um, <laughs> energy policies have been suboptimal in the West for an extended period of time uh, due to... Uh, the dogmatic views of a number of different policymakers, and I would argue uh, interference, possibly from from foreign powers lobbying some of these uh, yeah. people. I don't think you're going to get cancelled for that. If you get cancelled, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to self cancel and sit there right with you in protest. <laughs> you know, the, the other interesting thing you pointed out in the Trillions report, which which I'd seen as well, and you you flagged two articles that I'd read myself and said said, yeah, this is actually really interesting. This is a real shift, and that was the 
the mainstream media view on both sides of the political spectrum looking and starting to question the U.S. debt sustainability, which, you know, we, we saw that back in 2012. Um, it became a big thing for a short period of time, but it was really kind of juicy headlines ahead of a potential default, which, again, we knew wasn't going to happen. This time it seems to be slightly different. It, there's there's more nuanced questioning going on of of the of the the, the fiscal viability of the United States um, from both sides. So talk a little bit about that if you can, because as I say, I, I flagged that myself and thought, yeah, this is a, this is a sea change. Yeah, you saw it last week alone in both the Wall Street Journal and an op-ed, and the journal tends to shade shade conservative, and you saw it in the New York Times, which tends to shade liberal. And both were pointing out something you and I have been talking about for some time, which is math doesn't work. Math doesn't work. Um, and I, it's continued. I'm not going to, I won't name, I won't name the guy, but there's, I was just seeing today, a neoliberal, very liberal, neoliberal economist uh, who would have scoffed a year ago, two years ago, five years, 10 years ago, that U.S. federal debt matters, will ever matter. Is now saying, well, yeah, the interest will be higher, you know, but it's not going to be a problem. But there may be some austerity. Like, wait, what? Like, you, you were, you were the guy telling me a year ago. To you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There have been several of those instances. So I think it's now getting to the point where you can't. The math is the math. It, it, yeah. The math is so obvious. You, you don't have to go into the nitty gritty numbers. You sit down. I mean. You know, five percent, five percent on thirty-one trillion in debt, right? Fed funds terminal rate five percent, thirty-one trillion in debt, a trillion five pro forma. Thirty uh, percent of the U.S. debt's going to reprice th- within twelve months. I think, uh, I think seventy percent of it within three years. Um, trillion and a half. Uh, you make some assumption on a recession, a decline in receipts. You can look at entitlements, which were up like clockwork, six to ten percent. We're spending two point nine trillion a year, and uh, sorry, two point. Two point, yeah, no, two point nine trillion a year in entitlements, um, and a trillion five in receipts, or a trillion five in interest pro forma, and then you look at it relative to tax receipts, which at an all-time bubble driven by all the silliness that that drove all kinds of money into the coffers last year, that is not going to be repeated this year, given what asset prices have done. Uh, they were, I think, four point four, four point six trillion. So you're you're right back to where we were in COVID, which is. Your interest and interest-like obligations, your entitlement pay goes, plus your treasury spending, are more than 100% of receipts. And at that point, it's a simple it's a simple calculus. Does the Fed print the money? Yes or no? If yes, dollar down, risk up, inflation up, here we go. If no, dollar up, everything else down, short everything, go to the beach. And right. you know, probably stock up on some, you know on some doomer goods and some some just you know uh some yeah. some canned goods in case the Fed says, look, we're going to stand aside and just let this thing burn down. Well, it's interesting, you know, talking about the UK briefly there, and I, I've been going back this week because I'm writing about the UK this weekend, and, and going back and looking at what happened in 1976 with the IMF bailout for the UK, and just going back the six years before that, you know, the, the Conservative government that got elected in 1970, and just watching how left became right and right became left in their policies, not because they had any desire to go that way, the math just didn't work, and when you and when you look at a real world example like that, and I would I would encourage everybody to go back and look at the example of the U.S. of the U.K. Sorry, in, in the 1970s, um, where you've got Keynesian policies basically 
poo-poo. They just failed miserably. And everyone says this is the end of Keynesian economics. And it was for some considerable amount of time. You've got, you know, conservatives uh, trying to put in left-wing policies. You've got the Labour Party trying to get back into power, being forced to implement right-wing policies. And all of it, because none of it worked. They were forced into doing things which went against the very fundamental beliefs of their party and and the manifestos upon which they were elected. And, and so you saw whipsaws. You saw the Tories in, the Tories out, Labour in, Labour out, just for, you know, for 10 years until Margaret Thatcher came into power. And the whole thing culminated with the UK being forced to go cap in hand to the IMF. Um, you know, we saw multiple devaluations of the pound. We saw all these things play out. Um, and it was really started by a, a, another mini budget, like we saw a couple of weeks ago from Kwasi Kwarteng, this time by Anthony Barber in 1972, that was labelled the dash for growth. They did exactly the same thing, did the same thing, you know, tax cuts and bigger benefits and yada, 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 same policies. And it just so happens that that was now 50-odd years ago and people have forgotten. But when you look at what happens when you reach the point of the road that you've described so beautifully where it's all about the math, you don't have a choice, right? Your policies are chosen for you because it's, it's and, and, you know, now I've gone through all the now declassified cabinet papers of the time, and you can see it right there in black and white. We don't want to do this, and we're going to lose our base. We don't have a choice. We have to take these actions, and you've got the, the Chancellor Exchequer begging the Secretary of State for Energy, ironically, who's the only other guy with any real power in there because of all the, you know, the oil crisis and the coal miners' industrial action, You've got the Chancellor Stecker saying, I don't want to do this, but this is what we have to do because this is what the numbers say. The Energy Secretary saying, we can't do that. I say we go the other way completely. We put price controls in place. We put import controls in place. All the things that are happening today, we know how it ended, right? We know exactly how it ended. They went cap in hand to the IMF. They got bailed out. Sterling went in the toilet, yada, yada, yada. So, you know, where we are now, it's a much, much bigger scale than that. And this is not just the UK. This is the US, and as goes the US in this particular situation, so goes every other country on the face of the planet, essentially, except potentially Russia, which is the irony of the whole thing. <laughs> balance sheets matter, right? In the long run, balance sheets matter. And everybody here forgot that. Energy matters. Energy matters. Balance sheet matters. Um, yeah, it, 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 you know. People seem to forget the American century in 1946 or 1930, whatever you want to do. America was the biggest energy producer, biggest cheap energy producer. And we had all the gold. We had the best balance sheet. And yet the, 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 there's this, it's been forgotten. It, it's been forgotten. And now, uh, yeah, you're in a position where, you know, austerity won't work either. I mean, right. we, we, you and I, you and I talked in, 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 you know, uh, in March of 2021, or maybe it was April about the book, 1931 debt crisis and the rise of Hitler, right? It was, it wasn't the hyperinflation that brought Hitler to power. It was the austerity. The austerity, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, to see this neoliberal economist talking about, you know, Hey, you know, we might, you know, yeah, that we should be fine with higher interest, but we might need some austerity. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to you're going to cut the defense budget in the middle of a cold war. And oh, by the way, the defense budget's actually down here to date in America, um, yeah. despite all the money we're giving to Ukraine. Um, you, you're going to cut 
mom and pop, you're going to cut entitlements. I mean, you know, to your point, you're going to get voted out. And and the account for a 70% consumption economy, how how do you do that? How do you do that politically after you did you handled a weight like you did? And and what are the credit losses like across the system? And it was the debt levels are so great that anything you do, it goes back to that on-off switch. There's no you know switch or, or, or dial anymore. It's US economy on, US economy off. And we're seeing that in real time, right? As Fed started tightening, boom. I mean, to me, it's laughable a debate soft versus hard landing, like soft landing. Like if Fed's got the plane nose down doing 500 miles an hour um, yeah. and the, with the gear up and we're, you know, I mean, it, we're going to hit hard. Um, and, you know, yes, to be fair, others are going to hit hard first. You know, if they're picking up other people's pinkies before they're picking up my pinkies, I don't know how much that gives me a great degree of of comfort. I mean, I guess it does on some level, but that that will just speed the whole vortex up and and yeah it, it puts you in a very untenable position what's you know what's been interesting to me as i say it was, it was fascinating going back and reading all these old cabinet papers because you know what you laid out there was exactly what dennis healy the chancellor at the time came to the table and said we have to cut this defense spending we're gonna have to cut you know all the the solutions are the solutions they're always the same solutions right because the problems are always the same sometimes you get lucky sometimes you don't um but what's been interesting to me this time is that we've we've gone a long time without seeing policies be forced on governments, right? We've, we've looked into the abyss several times, and so it's understandable that people have no frame of reference because they haven't had to do all these things. But now we're at that point where the math matters. But we have a very recent example for us all to look at, and that's interest rates, right? You know they didn't want to raise interest rates. But now we've seen they're being forced to, from America to Australia and everywhere in between, they're being forced to raise interest rates against what they know is good for themselves, their balance sheets and everything else. So we should be able to sit and look at that and say, shit, you know, we do get to points where these guys have to make decisions that we know they don't want to and we've gotten so used to handicapping. Well, they would never do that because they'd shoot themselves in the foot. It feels like we're at that position now where policy is going to dictate what needs to be done, what has to be done, rather than what can we get away with, and that's a that's a massive change. Yeah, that's a great point, and I think I think that's right. Is is <laughs> I, I I've I've written in the last year of of look if Powell I think really understood the predicament he was in, he would have resigned last fall when he had the chance <laughs> during the insider trading scandal. I would have. Yeah. Hey, I didn't uh, supervise these guys properly. That falls on me. I'm out. He had to cover, and he didn't. Um, which also suggests to me that this has all sort of happened relatively quickly in the aftermath of, of uh, uh, you know, uh, how quickly things snuck up on them, um, you know, with inflation, with the war, et cetera. Yeah. Well, look, and Powell's hanging on. He's got to wait another, what, five years before he gets his Nobel Prize for economic sciences. So he's only <laughs> got to wait. He's only got to wait for that. <laughs> Listen, mate, imagine uh, being an arsonist and, and getting a imagine? Nobel Prize for being a firefighter. That's awesome. It's just genius. It's just genius. The <laughs> biggest trick the devil ever pulled. Um, listen, uh, the hours has flown by, and I'm I'm hugely appreciative, as always, of, of your time because, like I said, no one's done a better job for me of laying out this big picture stuff for such a long time now. And and the the trail of breadcrumbs that you've laid for anybody wanting to really understand this is is there in 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 the kind of back issues of of what you've done. So. For anyone listening to this who, who hasn't 
really taken a good look at your work. Tell them how they can do that. Because as I said, I've said it every time we do that, but I, I will keep saying until the cows come home, I think what you do and what you write about and the way you put the stuff is is going to be so important for people to get a handle on in the next few years that they're crazy if they're not following what you do. Thank you very much for those kind of words. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're at easiest way to track me down is at our website, fftt-llc.com. There's information about both our institutional and mass market products. And then I've got an active Twitter feed at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. Excellent, mate. Both fantastic resources for me and everybody else that follows them. So uh, again, my thanks to you for for the time once again. And uh, boy, I, I, I am equally looking forward to and terrified about continuing this conversation the next time we get together. But, <laughs> but you know, it's just, you and it's me like both. A, you just can't stop watching it, right? It's 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 history. We are living through history. We are, and it's one of these things where it's gone from interesting to serious to. I mean, I'm. It's 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 disconcerting. It is truly disconcerting yeah. because now it's getting to the point where you know both sides have inflicted some serious damage, and we know and we hear a lot about the damage inflicted on Russia. You don't hear the nightly news of hey, you know Americans aren't going to understand that the Treasury market, the Fed might have already lost control of the Treasury market, according to the the inventor of right. the volatility index to track the Treasury market volatility, right? So. That's not going to make the evening news, but that is every bit as much of a body blow as what Russia uh, is suffering over in Ukraine. And so now that you start extracting, you know, you know, fights get serious when 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 people start getting bloodied up. Yeah, damn straight. Luke, my friend, thank you so much. Uh, let's do this again soon, but maybe with a brandy or something. <laughs> that sounds excellent. All right, take care, mate. All right. Well, as I said, uh, there is so much happening in the world right now, and having someone like Luke around to to help me and by extension you keep track of it uh, is vitally important. Luke's work is phenomenal. Uh, You can find him at fftt-llc.com and he is on Twitter. You'll find him at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. He's a terrific follower on both and I cannot recommend his work highly enough. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.